uh, reading from the book of Genesis, the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I hear the sound of you in the garden. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The word of the Lord. Our second reading continues chapter 3 in Genesis, starting verse 14. <clears throat> the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of light, life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, 
he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword, and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Uh, Father, the, uh, our most urgent need is to know you as you are. And it doesn't feel like that's our most urgent need a lot of the time, but it, it, it's a need underneath all the other ones. And you're so hard to see sometimes from where we stand, from where we sit, from the perspective that we have in these short lives. And yet, I thank you, we thank you that you're good at communicating. You're good at revealing yourself. And so, Father, pour out your Spirit upon us. Will you grant us to see you? In seeing you, grant us to see ourselves. And then make it be that we are found by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> Um, we are continuing a uh, series, thank you, in um, the book of Genesis, and uh, we, you know, if you've been with us, hopefully you've noticed that in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, just there's this remarkable vision that God, uh, that the Bible displays about creation. You, it's, I hope you've enjoyed it. It's beautiful. God, uh, this beautiful God introduces himself, so to speak, by making and creating this beautiful world uh, for the enjoyment of, um, of beautiful creatures, humans, people like us, uh, Adam and Eve and so forth. And it's a beautiful vision. And yet there's something about it. it, it did you find this? There's something about it that as you read Genesis 1 and 2, on the one hand, you can recognize the beauty, something of the beauty that we live in, but in another sense, you're looking uh, at, a, at a world that's a little different than the one we experience, isn't it? Do you experience unmitigated beauty in this world and in your life? Um, today, we're coming to Genesis chapter 3. And this is where we get to confront one of the great mysteries of our world. What's that? It's the mystery of evil. Uh, it's the mystery of sin. Uh, why do I call it a mystery? Don't you think it's a mystery? Um, why is it that, uh, why do, why do uh, wonderful, beautiful, smart people, lovely people do terrible things? Why? Why do I do terrible things? Um, why is it that, um, I mean, you, you know, you, you look at the news, you look at the news, and there's a way in which you cannot watch, read, listen, however you take in the news. You can't do that, with, am I wrong, without there being a, a certain degree of a weightiness, a, a sense of what in the world is wrong with our world. We live in a beautiful world, but we also live in a world that it's just the height of, of simplicity, of naivete to deny just the crushing reality of evil, isn't it? Why? And why does it touch us like everywhere? Why is it that we can be the most um, advanced, educated society and, you know, whatever, in forever, 
and yet it seems as far as we reach in this world, we reach it with evil. Why? Why do you see it in our companies? Is it FTX? The guy from FTX? What's his name this week? That guy. Why is it really smart people uh, end up being corrupt? Why do you see that in politicians? Why is it that people apparently get into politics for really, really good reasons, and then when they're into it, they, they do terrible, terrible things? Why do I do those terrible things? Why is it that when you uh, reach inside the psychology of our experience, you find that deep within us there's this persistent shame so often? Sometimes we've experienced terrible, terrible things. Sometimes we've committed terrible, terrible things. Why, why, why? What is the reality and the mystery of evil? And Genesis 3 is designed uh, to start to pull back the veil, at least a little bit. And it pulls back the veil to allow us to see something of the mystery of evil that we couldn't see otherwise. It's designed to show us something in the mystery of evil in order that we can be equipped uh, both to diagnose it within our own lives, but also to resist it in the midst of this world. Because you're never going to be able to resist the evil around us uh, until you can diagnose it in yourself. And so beginning today and over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at little aspects we're not going to, of the mystery of evil. Today we're just going to look at, a, at one particular thing. And it's an, it's an aspect of the mystery of evil that might not be, that might not be intuitive. And here it is. Uh, evil is subtle and sin is seductive. And it disguises itself uh, by distorting the face of God. The heart of evil is the distortion, the falsification of God. And I want to flesh this out. Come with me. Look at the reading. We're just almost exclusively on the first reading, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, pause. Um, all kinds of questions come up there. Uh, who's the snake? Why is he there? Where did he come from? Why did God allow him? All those sorts of things. Those are good questions. Not going to answer one of them. But we're going to focus on what he says. Look, keep, keep, keep reading. Uh, the snake says this. He says to the woman, this is Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Does that sound like an innocent question? It's not an innocent question. Um, I wish you could see, we, just, we don't have Bibles open, so you can't see the, the, uh, the sentence just before this at the end of chapter 2. Um, do you know what it says? It says this. It says, uh, and the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. Why is that important? Here's why. All through Genesis chapter 2, and, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, God is busy, busy at work, and he's aiming to create a space where humanity, in this case Adam and Eve, are able to thrive together in an experience of intimacy and love and joy. They're naked and they're unashamed with one another and before God. And that's just not about uh, sexuality, although it includes sexuality. But what it means is that Adam and Eve are able to experience this wonderful thing. None of us have really experienced it fully. They were, they were able to be fully known and totally safe and absolutely vulnerable and loved. 
And they could experience that because they trusted each other, and they trusted each other because together they trusted God. And God uh, created this place to be animated by trust that then therefore brought forth an experience of joy and of mutual love. It's just wonderful. But into that comes the hiss of the snake. It's a hiss we're pretty familiar with. Did God actually say you got to have a, an eye roll and a glottal release? Ugh. Did God actually say you can't eat from any tree? Now, there's disinformation there, right? Because, uh, and Eve picks this up and she corrects them. The issue is not just that the snake is misrepresenting and there's a disinformation thing happening. Because God had said, you can eat from any tree except for one. And, and, and the snake turns that around and says, can you not eat from anything? No. That's, the problem, though, the deeper issue is contempt. Um, a philosopher called Schopenhauer said this, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. The worthlessness of another. Contempt. And the snake's question is just dripping with contempt. Um, and nothing kills trust as quickly as does contempt. So look back at the question. The contempt is carrying a message. The question operates a little bit like a Trojan horse. The snake is smuggling a very powerful idea into the conversation. And here's the powerful idea. He's saying something like this. He's saying, Eve, Eve, God is not just. He's not just. Uh, what he is, it's as if the snake says he's got a lot of power, and he's using it to oppress you. He's using it to abuse you. You cannot trust him. Now, pause here and, and keep in mind something we've been trying to remember each week. Genesis was written to ancient Israel as they were experiencing liberation and coming out of Egypt through the surprising and miraculous work of the Lord. And they were immersed in the uh, thought structure of uh, polythe polytheistic paganism. Now, in polytheistic paganism, uh, the relationship between the pagan gods and humanity is all about power and coercion. So uh, the Babylonians have a guy called Mar Marduk and others, Canaanites, Baal and others, uh, Egyptians, Amun-Re and many others. But all of them, they don't love you in polytheistic paganism. They don't make promises and, and keep them. Uh, what they do is they dominate you. And so as Israel is leaving Egypt, you can read about this in Exodus, they keep defaulting to that idea. They keep thinking, this God who liberated us from Egypt, maybe he's probably just like all the other pagan gods we've ever imagined and we've ever heard about. He's going to turn on us. He really, his underlying aim is to dominate us. And that's the snake's argument here. Your God is fooling you. He cannot be trusted. He's not just. Now, the root of evil in your heart and mind is the distortion of God. And therefore, uh, if you're going to resist evil, everything depends upon seeing God clearly. But that's where Eve falters. 
So she corrects the misinformation, but the problem is she swallows the message behind it. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, pay attention in particular to Eve's view of God. And listen to how she represents God. Uh, there's two things to see. On the one hand, she makes God more strict than he is. So uh, God said, don't eat the fruit off of a particular tree, but he didn't say you couldn't touch it. So Eve seems to make God more restrictive. Why is that important? We'll see, see in a second. But first, look at what she leaves out. Eve mentions one tree in the middle of the garden. But if you look back to Genesis chapter 2, there were two trees in the middle of the garden. One tree was the knowledge of uh, good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's the one that they weren't supposed to eat from. But then there was another tree, and the other tree was the tree of life. And they were supposed to eat from that tree. Why is that important? Here's why. The tree of life in the middle of the Garden of Eden was a signpost of God's generosity and God's kindness and God's provision and God's grace. And they were supposed to feast off of God's generosity and grace and mercy and gift of life. And as they feasted off this tree of life, on the one hand, it would let them live perpetual longevity. But on the other hand, at the, at the same time, it would renew their bond of love with the God who is kind and generous and full of love. But Eve forgets that tree. She's not thinking about that aspect of who God is. She's only thinking about the rule and the restriction and it's an indication that her relationship with God is shifting from one based on trust and love to a dynamic of power and coercion. She's imagining that God is like a pagan deity. She's imagining that God's something like the oppressive Pharaoh. And because of that, she's beginning to give her consent to the snake's contempt. And I think that explains why she makes God's command more strict than it needs to be. Why, why, why do I say that? Um, <clears throat> if, I, if I imagine that God is basically an unjust oppressor, a pharaoh, big pharaoh, uh, then there are two possible responses to that. On the one hand, I could just, you know, rebel outwardly right away. If I think I can get away with it, I might do that. But the other thing that I might do is I might collaborate. Uh, tactically collaborate. I might think something like this. Uh, yeah, God is just a giant pharaoh. He's a bit of a jerk, but he's powerful. And he might be able to give me what I want. And therefore, I'm going to tactically, I'm going to make a tactical decision to play along. And uh, in fact, in fact, I'm not just going to play along. I'm going to do everything he says to do. I'm not just going to do everything he says to do. I'm going to do extra credit. I'm going to run up the score. I'm going to be really, really strict. Because, um, because he'll have to give me what I want because I'm just going to run up the score. Now, that's the logic of legalism. Uh, that's the motive of moralism. 
And you can have people who are super religious and super strict and super observant, but their relationship with God is all about power and coercion rather than trust and love. And because their relationship with God is about power and coercion, they end up very often treating other people in a way that's coercive and based on power. And this is one of the reasons why you can have churches that look good on the outside, that on paper are great, but inside they're ferociously toxic and ferociously oppressive and ferociously contemptuous of each other sometimes and of outsiders. What I'm trying to show you, friends, is that the mystery of evil is distortion of God. And look at what the next thing the snake says. Look at verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, he will not surely die. For, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, the snake's first distortion is uh, God's not just, so you can't trust him. His second distortion is uh, God is standing in the way of your dignity. Uh, God is not out for your flourishing. He's an obstacle to your flourishing. He's threatened by your potential. He's lying to you in order to keep you down. Eve, you could be like God. You know what the tragedy there is? Eve already was like God. Kind of. Do you know what I mean? So uh, in Genesis chapter 1, it says that God created humanity in his own image. In his image and likeness. Likeness. Which means God had designed Eve already to be like him, which meant to live, to flourish in a relationship of intimacy and love and joy with him. And then, because you know him so well, you get to reflect him out to others so you become like the God of grace and glory and love toward other people. And it spreads the intimacy, the joy, and the trust. That was what she was made for and designed for. But, but in this moment, she forgot that. She forgot who she is. Sin likes to make us forget. It's, it's, it's like amnesia. It's like Alzheimer's. It always wants us to forget God's goodness. And in particular, sin loves to make us forget the dignity God gave us in the beginning. Because if we forget the dignity that God gives us by his grace, what happens within us is we find in ourselves this overwhelming need to find dignity for ourselves. We look at ourselves and we say, if God is standing against me, then I must be my only ally, and I've got to take it up in myself to find the dignity that I need. And this is where there's a camera shift in the story. Uh, because up until this point, it's been largely, the, the conversation's been largely about God, falsifying him, but talking about him. But now, it shifts the focus from God to the self, to Eve. Uh, she concludes that God's not uh, out for her dignity. She's her only ally. And so she centers the self. E Adam's right next to her doing the same thing the whole time. And she resolves to become, so to speak, the master of her own dignity um, be by becoming the arbiter of good and evil for herself. That's, that's what eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. Um, it's about declaring independence from God because he can't be trusted 
and taking it upon ourselves uh, to be our own masters and to determine for ourselves what right and wrong is. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche um, has this famous uh, line where he says, uh, God is dead and we have killed him. Um, <clears throat> and a little bit later, so he was an atheist, virulent opponent of Christianity. He was also brilliant. And, uh, and in that same context, he talks about how when God is out of the picture, uh, the, it creates like a power vacuum, and we've got to put ourselves into it. Uh, he says this, he says, will we not have to become gods just to make ourselves worthy of the deed of killing him? And that's how sin works. We consent to contempt for God. And we decide that God is not just and I cannot trust him. And we decide that God is an obstacle to our dignity and therefore I am my only real ally. And by this point, we've already, in a sense, made ourselves our deepest hope. We've already begun to make ourselves our own God. And then something happens at that moment. When I am my own God, when, when I'm uh, deeply centered upon the self, when I become the source of my own hope, I look into my soul and I look for whatever is most powerful within myself. And do you know what I find? I look in my soul and I find a cacophony of screaming desire. Verse 6, And the woman saw the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. Desire. Let me be careful here. Let's not forget that God made us good, and God created desire, and every desire we have can be used for good. It is also true that all of our desires are potential addictions. And when we make ourselves our own God, our desires end up becoming our masters. They can take on the toxicity of addiction, and they become demanding tyrants and because we're tyrannized by our desires we end up being just terrible arbiters of good and evil we're just not objective anymore we can't really tell the difference because our desires are screaming and what happens is because our desires are screaming we end up justifying whatever it is we want right i mean and this is why you can have uh, a a you know really corrupt leader of a company who gets up in front of everybody and says no 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 no, no. i was super just justified and i bet you he's not lying he thinks he's justified because he's found a way to justify his desires he had to get what he wanted it's why you can have a pastor that can get up and having done terrible, terrible things can give a, a spin a tale of justification. Because what he wants is what he wants and he finds a way to justify himself. When our desires rule us, we are terrible arbiters of right and wrong. And it all stems from a falsification of God. We think that God is not just and so he cannot be trusted. God's an obstacle to our dignity, and we're the only allies we've got, and your only hope is to be the source of your only hope, and so your desires begin to rule. And strangely, we do kind of end up like gods. We don't end up like the God of Genesis. We end up like the gods of paganism. And we use our power to coerce our world to the greatest extent that we can so that we can get what it is that we want. We were made to be like God, and sin contorts us into the image of the snake.
And so can you see the mystery of sin? It's the tragedy of our lives. And it just doesn't deliver. So we seek dignity, but guess what we get? We get persistent shame. Verse 7. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths. I mean, they, this used to be the, the image of their intimacy, and now it's the epicenter of their shame. It's shattered. And then they turn on each other. Specifically, Adam turns on Eve. Verse 12, he, he just throws his wife under the bus because the contempt that he has towards God, he now shows towards his wife, that woman you gave me. And in the end, their dash for autonomy doesn't lead to hope. It ends up that the only sure thing in their future is their coming death. Sin promises a lot. It's a damnable liar. And can you see our world here, team? Can you see the echoes of our shame? Can you see why we're plagued with contempt? That's why we're so polarized and why we sort into tribes and get good at hating. And it's why so many of us live with a low-grade hopelessness. All right, I can hear somebody say, this is why I hate coming to church, because it's super depressing. Um, it would be if the Bible left us there. And we're going to look at this passage more, but let me just show you that the Genesis doesn't leave us there, okay? There's a lot more to, sh to see here, but Genesis 3 wants to unveil the mystery of evil, not to depress us, but to liberate us. You've got to understand that evil happens when we falsify God, and therefore the resistance to evil is animated when God comes clear to us. The more you can see who God is, the more you're going to be able to diagnose your own sin, and the more you'll be uh, 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 resistant to being gullible to the lies around us, and the more you'll be able to be equipped to resist the evil that is around you. So the urgent need is to get clear on who God is. And how can we do that? Well, kind of you can't. But God's very good at communicating. And you can see a hint of it in this passage. Turn over to the verse 21. There's an absolute breakdown in their relationship, and God has to send, and we'll talk about this later, has to send Adam and Eve into exile out of the garden, has to exile them from the tree of life. But before he does that, he makes clothes for Adam and Eve. Do you see that? Verse 21. Now just consider the dignity that God gives these two who have made themselves his enemy. Here they, they're holding God in contempt. They've, so to speak, divorced God. They've started to turn on each other. They've run away from him. And they did that because they slandered God as if he's not just and he cannot be trusted and that he, they, he, they've accused him, so to speak, of, of blocking their dignity. And how is it that God's going to treat his enemies? Well, there is judgment and we'll talk about that but he refuses to let them remain unclothed 
And just imagine what that was like for them. They're afraid, they're ashamed, they're resentful, and then God approaches. They're seeing their God, uh, God as their enemy. Their defenses go up. They, run they want to run, and then they hear God say, but I have made clothes for you. Adam and Eve, may I clothe you? And you're cold because loincloths are terrible. And so you consent. And you find the God who is, you've made to be your enemy now is clothing you. And you feel the warmth of the clothing. And then you realize that you're being fitted not only with clothes, but with dignity from someone you count as your, your enemy. And therefore, it's a dignity that you don't deserve. And then as you experience being clothed with a dignity you do not deserve, all of a sudden you realize that God was just after all and he was worthy of your trust and that he loves your dignity all along and that he didn't deserve your rejection and you begin to experience God's goodness from the vantage point of a dignity you don't deserve. And that's when you realize that this God must become your only hope. And that's how God counters sin. He defalsifies himself by giving us a dignity that we cannot deserve. And Emmanuel, that's Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do. Jesus is God unveiled. God defalsified. Jesus comes and he is God's triumph over the snake. Jesus comes, Colossians says, to clothe you. To clothe you with himself. To clothe you with his own dignity. And when you find yourself clothed with a dignity you do not deserve, that's when you will look into the eyes of a just and trustworthy God who loves you. And as you look into the eyes of a dignifying God who gives you his grace and his mercy, you'll find that he is your hope. And as you find that he is your hope, then you, all of a sudden you'll find yourself in a new world. You'll look out and you'll see that this is the God whom you can trust. And you'll look within yourselves and you'll see guilt and sin that's got to be dealt with, but you'll know who to go to and you'll bring him your worst and he'll give you all that he is and all that is love. And then you will find yourself cleansed, renewed, equipped, and empowered, and sent into the world that desperately needs a word of hope. Be clothed with Christ. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.